Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Historical Resources and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund, the Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, and by Florida's Space Coast Office of Tourism, representing destinations from Titusville to Cocoa Beach to Melbourne Beach. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Broatmarkle, and coming up on the program, the Key Marco Cat and other Calusa artifacts are on display at the Marco Island Historical Museum. It's really the culmination of a vision that the founders of the Historical Society had uh, 25 years ago when they created this organization. They wanted to build a museum on Marco Island. They achieved that dream in 2010, and they actually built the museum architecturally around the idea that these artifacts would one day come home and be put into these display cases that they installed from the outset. We'll discuss Sanborn fire insurance maps, the Sanborn and fire insurance maps are really the only collection of maps in the United States that historians, demographers can use to understand the evolution of a single property or a single area. And we'll talk about a one-man show looking at the life of the infamous Henry Titus. All that ahead on Florida Frontiers. Now old Mr. Johnson had troubles of his own He had a yellow cat who wouldn't leave his home He tried and he tried to give the cat away He gave it to a man going far, far away But the cat came back the very next day The cat came back, they thought he was a gunner But the cat came back, he just couldn't stay away the folk song The Cat Came Back by Harry S. Miller was written in 1893. Just three years later, the Key Marco Cat came back to human awareness during an archaeological dig in southwest Florida. After more than a century mostly away from Florida, the Key Marco Cat has come home to the Marco Island Historical Museum for an extended stay. The Key Marco Cat and other artifacts on display at the museum were created by the Calusa. Before European contact in 1513, and for about two and a half centuries after that, the Calusa inhabited much of South Florida, including Marco Island. Austin Bell is curator of collections for the Marco Island Historical Society. It was very well-established uh, centuries of tradition uh, and culture in this area, going back maybe even uh, as far as 6,000 years uh, from the Calusa to their archaic ancestors. and. Uh, one of the key reasons for that was the availability of marine and estuarine resources in the waters all around them. And so from those fish and shellfish that they ate, uh, which were a predominant part of their diet, they were able to sustain themselves and also develop technology, uh, such as shell tools that they were able to then use to uh, fully exploit uh, the resources around them and create a comfortable uh, living situation for themselves for centuries, generations of people. Archaeologists have discovered numerous shell mounds that served as the foundations for buildings in Calusa cities. 
Many of them were built on large uh, shell earthworks, including uh, one here on Marco Island uh, that archaeologists call Key Marco. Uh, and they were built, basically uh, cities built on shell middens, uh, what were essentially at one point uh, garbage piles and refuse of you know, the shellfish that they were eating every day. Uh, and then they built their structures on top of these shell middens. Um, and they were scattered all throughout you know, the 10,000 Islands, the Everglades, the Southwest Florida area. Spanish documents indicate that there are at least 50 or 60 towns. One of them was likely Muspa, which was in the area of Marco Island, according to Spanish descriptions and maps. Um, and um, so that would probably, possibly be in the area where the Key Marco site was later found. The Calusa were one of the most powerful tribes in Florida with a sophisticated political system. Austin Bell. We know from Spanish documents that they did uh, war with uh, the Tocobaga in the uh, Tampa area to the north, um, but they were very powerful by the time Europeans arrived in South Florida generally. They controlled at least 50 or 60 towns uh, and demanded tribute from places as far away as the Florida Keys, Miami, uh, Lake Okeechobee, and even influenced as far away as Cape Canaveral. Uh, and there's evidence of trade even as far as Missouri and other parts of the southeast. Uh, but they were known as a fierce people. The name Kalos, as described by the Spanish, they said that they named themselves the fierce people and they had a reputation for that uh, with not only the Europeans but other native tribes in Florida. The Spanish had first-hand knowledge about just how fierce the Calusa could be because their attempts to establish European settlements were effectively repelled. From the very beginning, um, Juan Ponce de Leon, when he came up around the, the southern uh, tip of Florida and encountered the Calusa in 1513, uh, he was met with a fleet of war canoes that repelled him um, and uh, later actually led to his death. He was mortally wounded when he returned in 1521 uh, by a Calusa weapon. Um, and so, yeah, the Calusa kept Europeans kind of at arm's length for the better part of two centuries, uh, but ultimately uh, did succumb to uh, not only the diseases that were brought in, but also uh, warring with neighboring tribes and uh, slavery. They were actually, some of them were taken as captives or slaves by uh, tribes to the north that were allied with the English. In 1763, the British took control of Florida from Spain, and Austin Bell explains that most of the Calusa were gone by then. 1763 is about the time that the Calusa sort of disappear from the historical record. Um, it's thought that most of them were driven further south into the Florida Keys and some uh, then fled on to Cuba, uh, where many of them actually died of disease shortly thereafter. And so that's really the last documented reference to the Calusa and the native Florida people that you know were just driven out by Europeans and their invasion of the continent. It's possible that any Calusa that remained in Florida were absorbed into the Seminole tribe, which arrived in Florida in the 18th century. There are some uh, Spanish uh, oral histories that say that if a person is particularly tall, they may have some Calusa blood. And there are actually stories uh, and songs from a point in Seminole history where they were said to have lived side by side. Um, so it's possible that some survived uh, either here in Florida or in Cuba. Um, but, you know, from a practical standpoint, the Calusa as a people are no more. Uh, there's no place to go and talk to a Calusa person. 
Uh, there's no one that speaks the Calusa language, and so in that way, the Seminole and Miccosukee that are here with us now are, uh, you know, unique culture from the Calusa. In 1896, Frank Hamilton Cushing led an archaeological excavation on Marco Island, uncovering ancient artifacts of the Calusa. Curator Austin Bell. In about 1895, he pulled some unusual items out of a muck pit that he was just going to collect fertilizer from for his vegetable garden. And so one thing led to another. Word got up to Cushing, who was visiting his personal physician at the University of Pennsylvania. And he ended up coming down here on a reconnaissance trip to investigate in 1895. And it only took him about an hour to realize that what was coming out of this muck pit was truly special and that he had to organize a full-scale investigation uh, the following year. So uh, in 1896, he and a team from uh, the University of Pennsylvania and the Smithsonian Institution came to Marco Island and excavated a site in the muck pit, which he called the Court of the Pile Dwellers, for a period of about three months, finding just unbelievably sophisticated and uniquely preserved artifacts that don't ordinarily survive in, in archaeological sites. The six-inch-tall wooden carving called the Key Marco Cat is one of the most intriguing pre-Columbian artifacts from Florida. The purpose of this anthropomorphic, part-feline, part-human figure remains a mystery. There are some theories. Probably the most popular one is, you know, taken from Spanish documents, inferences made about uh, a temple of idols that the Spanish described, where the Calusa would have worshipped these idols and worn masks and performed masks processions with musical performances um, and uh, it's thought that maybe the cat and these other animal figureheads that were discovered at Key Marco were the idols that these Spanish uh, documents referred to. So it could have had uh, religious or spiritual importance. It could have also just been uh, art for art's sake or a piece of furniture and you know because the clues aren't here to tell us themselves we don't know for sure. The Key Marco cat is on loan from the Smithsonian Institution other amazing artifacts from the Cushing excavation are also on display at the Marco Island Historical Museum. Curator Austin Bell. The expedition was joint sponsored between the Smithsonian and the University of Pennsylvania, and so some of the artifacts are now in Philadelphia, some are in Washington. Uh, but we were able to obtain loans from the University of Pennsylvania of uh, four amazing uh, artifacts from the same site, uh, an alligator figurehead, a uh, human face mask, um, and these artifacts still have the original paint visible on them, what is possibly a sea turtle or bird figurehead, depending on who you ask and, and who's interpreting it, and then also a small uh, Sunray Venus clamshell with the painting of a human figure inside, which was a very controversial item because uh, when Cushing returned to Washington, uh, some members of the Bureau of American Ethnology actually accused him of forging the artifact. Uh, so that particular object has a really unique history as well, um, and ultimately it was thought to be proven um, generally as authentic, but there are still some doubters as to its authenticity. So uh, just a, a really fascinating set of artifacts on loan to us. Bell is pleased that the artifacts on display at the Marco Island Historical Museum still exist. Many of the pieces that Cushing excavated in 1896 disintegrated when removed from their anaerobic environment. Many of the artifacts, even as they were pulling them out of the mud, were disintegrating right before their eyes. And 
Uh, you can imagine over more than 100 years in museum storage, those that survived the initial excavation, many of those has, have since shrunken, warped, turned completely to dust. And so uh, what you see here is really, you know, are the best examples that have survived uh, not only the excavation, but uh, more than a century in, in museum collection storage. It was good planning that Cushing had an artist on hand at his excavation. Drawings still exist of many of the artifacts that were lost. Austin Bell. They found a number of these spectacular type artifacts, the human face masks, at least 14 of those, animal figureheads, um, painted wooden carvings, things that are just stunning in their artistic uh, sophistication. But they also found lots of utilitarian household items uh, and especially remarkable is the fishing net that they found. You can actually see uh, the knots that they used in the size uh, of the openings in the net that still survived and you know through centuries of sitting in, in this muck and then you know uh, shell tools and uh, wooden boxes and stools and just all sorts of um, household items that were probably very common uh, but we didn't know about before this archaeological excavation was made uh, because ordinarily those things made of wood and plant fiber will just disintegrate and not survive in archaeological context. Banners on lampposts lining the streets of Marco Island announced the return of the Key Marco cat after more than a century. It's clear that the community is proud that this particular cat came back home. It's really the culmination of a vision that the founders of the Historical Society had uh, 25 years ago when they created this organization. Um, they wanted to build a museum on Marco Island. They achieved that dream in 2010, and they actually built the museum uh, architecturally around the idea that these artifacts would one day come home and be put into these display cases that they installed from the outset. And so here we are nine years after the museum first opened and the artifacts are finally in place. Uh, we're just so excited to have these artifacts here and share that with, with the public. Austin Bell is curator of collections at the Marco Island Historical Museum, where the Key Marco cat and other Calusa artifacts are now on display. But the cat came back the very next day. The cat came back. They thought he was a gunner, but the cat came back. He just couldn't stay away. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Visit us on the web at myfloridahistory.org to find out about upcoming events like the Florida Historical Society Annual Meeting and Symposium and the Florida Frontiers Festival. Watch archived episodes of our Florida Frontiers television program and much more. That's myfloridahistory.org. Historians glean information from many types of documents. Joining us now is Ben DiBiase, Director of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical Society and Archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. Ben, today we're looking at Sanborn fire insurance maps. Yeah, that's right. And the uh, Sanborn maps, as they're commonly referred to, were produced from the mid-19th century all the way up through the late 
20th century by the Sanborn Fire Insurance Map Company. Uh, and the company was created in 1867 by Daniel Alfred Sanborn, who was originally from Massachusetts. He was a young civil surveyor who was contracted by a insurance firm to create a map for a particular area in Massachusetts. Well, Mr. Sanborn realized the potential for uh, potential to make quite a bit of money in creating a uh, a standardized map system for large cities uh, originally throughout the northeastern part of the United States, uh, but that expanded throughout the entire country. And in fact, by the early 20th century, the Sanborn Fire Insurance Map Company had created uh, detailed surveying maps of over 12,000 cities and towns throughout the United States, including quite a few uh, right here in Florida. Uh, what's interesting about these maps is, um, as the uh, title indicates, they were created for insurance companies uh, and their underwriters, and they are uh, very detailed surveying maps that, uh, as I mentioned before, are highly standardized. So every single map for every single city that the Sanborn Map Company created um, all used, used utilized rather the same uh, color coordination system, uh, indicated where uh, physical structures were uh, throughout uh, every single building in an entire town. So if you look at one of these maps today, you get a very accurate uh, idea of what a town looked like, say, in the 1870s. Uh, you can then compare that to what it looked like, say, in the 1950s. Um, so they're, they're uh, again, very uh, uh, detailed maps, but they're also uh, aesthetically pleasing as well, again, because of that uniformity. Uh, so there's a, a certain amount of, of artfulness that really went into these, uh, these surveying uh, maps. Now, uh, Sanborn, like I said, was uh, started the company in the 1860s, and uh, through the late 19th and early 20th century, with the enormous growth in, in the urban population of, of most U.S. cities and towns, um, the demand for these fire insurance maps uh, really increased into the 20th century. Uh, and at the height of the company's history, they employed hundreds of, of private surveyors who traveled throughout the country and created these maps, uh, but also hundreds of lithographers, cartographers, printers, uh, salesmen, uh, who were all involved in uh, creating and then marketing these maps for uh, insurance companies. And you have here some Sanborn Fire Insurance maps from St. Augustine. Yeah, that's right. Uh, what we're looking at today is a large bound volume uh, dated April 1930 for the city of St. Augustine. And this is uh, one of the only original Sanborn maps that we have in the collection. Uh, and if we open this up, you'll see that uh, each page uh, measures uh, almost two feet by two feet. I mean, they're enormous. But uh, because of the size, it enables the surveyors to include a lot of uh, really interesting details about every single structure. And what probably first uh, strikes you know most people when they see these maps is the coloration. We see these really bright hand-colored pinks and blues and yellows, and that was all indicative of the type of structure uh, that we're looking at. Uh, and each Sanborn map, at least each bound volume, came with a key. So if we look at uh, the, the key for uh, St. Augustine, we'll notice that the uh, blue maps um, or the blue structures, rather, indicate that a building is made out of some kind of stone. In fact, if it's blue with a small CBR dot, that means that it's concrete with some brick structure. Now, this is important, again, for insurance companies because they want to properly understand and accurately understand um, how to assess the liability when insuring certain structures and certain properties. And they want to know exactly what these buildings are made out of. Uh, we notice the uh, yellow buildings would be a frame building or wood frame building. Um, we also see uh, uh, small indications for windows. 
Uh, we know where all of the doors are. But if we look down the streets, we're actually looking at an intersection of uh, King Street and Cordova. There is a fire hydrant, and that's uh, marked here as, as an FR showing uh, exactly where, where fire extinguishers were. And again, that would affect the, uh, the, the liability standards that the insurance company would uh, assess on a certain property. Um, and again, they're looking at them today. Uh, they're aesthetically very pleasing because they were done uh, in a very standardized way. In fact, in 1905, the Sanborn Company created a manual for all of their surveyors to ensure that every single map uh, would be exactly the, the same or up to at least the same standards uh, for every town throughout, uh, throughout the United States. And these maps we're looking at are from, from 1930, and as you mentioned, there are maps from many other years, so it sounds like these could be uh, very valuable tools for researchers today. Absolutely. In fact, uh, the Sanborn and fire insurance maps are really the uh, only collection of, of maps in the United States that uh, historians, demographers can use um, to understand the evolution of a single property or a single area. So for instance, we can look at a map from, say, 1885 of the city of Jacksonville and compare that uh, to a map from 1955 of that same uh, the same area within the city of Jacksonville. Uh, and if you look at every volume, and it depended on the size of the city uh, as to when a new volume would be published, uh, but for a larger city like Jacksonville, that was more frequent than, say, St. Augustine. But we can look at every volume, you know, in a 10-year segment and literally see the evolution of an urban area. And that's vitally important to uh, uh, our understanding of how uh, the growth of, of cities within the United States occurred in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. Uh, and it's uh, vitally important for, for historians, for genealogists as well, uh, for folks who are uh, even historic uh, preservationists and, and those involved with uh, restoration of historic buildings. You know, a lot of these buildings still exist. So how do we know, uh, you know, which, uh, where windows were placed and whether or not there was a garage attached to a structure, things like that. All of that can be found on these Sanborn uh, fire insurance maps. Now, uh, the Library of Congress probably has the largest single collection of these maps, but there are a few other firms throughout the, uh, throughout the United States that have digitized uh, these maps and actually allow users to uh, layer uh, uh, different years you know, on top of each other so you can, again, visually see how uh, a structure has, uh, has evolved and, and changed over time. Great. Well, thanks, Ben. Sure. Thank you. Ben DiBiase is Director of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical Society and Archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. This is Florida Frontiers. Colonel Henry Titus was a colorful character and the namesake of the city of Titusville. A one-man show explores the life of this infamous pioneer. Holly Baker is Public History Coordinator for the Florida Historical Society and Manager of the Brevard Museum of History and Natural Science. Henry Titus, the founder of Titusville, Florida and Brevard County, is such a mythical figure that it's difficult to separate fact from fiction concerning his life. He is said to have been many things, including an adventurer, an entrepreneur, a sawmill owner, a postal inspector, a grocer, a farmer, a soldier, a silver miner, a notary public, a turtler, a bartender, a land speculator, and a hotel keeper. Sue Perry with the Brevard Museum of History and Natural Science in Cocoa recently organized a theatrical play at the museum about the life of Henry Titus. The play describes Henry Titus as Brevard's real-life Indiana Jones. Sue Perry. Henry Titus was the most exciting character. 
He was larger than life. He was well over six feet, weighed about 230 pounds, was extremely good looking. He was an adventurer. He was, um, some said he was a carpetbagger. Some said he was a scalawag. Others said he was the most dedicated public servant. Henry Titus was such an impressive figure. And if you've seen an Indiana Jones movie, you know immediately what Henry Titus was like. He was Indiana Jones. He had so many varied adventures, so many exploits. It's hard to convey it all in one program, but Bill does a good job. In a dramatic monologue performed by actor and author Bill Sorrell at the Brevard Museum in Coco, the ghost of Henry Titus talks about his exploits and adventures. Bill Sorrell. The play is a story by Henry Titus's ghost bragging about his exploits, adventures, and successes during his short lifetime. He only lived to be about 62 years old. Titusville is named after Henry Titus, and he was cantankerous and belligerent. In the uh, one-man play that we did today, uh, he comes back and begins to tell his story to the audience. I think the the author, Sue Perry, did a wonderful job of research and putting it together into an entertaining slice of Henry Titus. Henry Titus was born in Trenton, New Jersey, although his birth year is a mystery. His tombstone indicates that he was born in 1823, but other sources claim he was born in 1815 and 1822. Influenced by ideas of manifest destiny, in the 1850s, Henry Titus invaded Cuba with the Narcezo Lopez filibuster expeditions that were intent on overthrowing Spanish colonialism there. He also joined pro-slavery forces in Bleeding, Kansas, and operated silver mines in Arizona with his brother Elliot, who was killed by Apaches. In 1857, he led an expedition in Nicaragua under the regime of William Walker, who had seized control of the country with a goal to create a slaveholding empire. In the 1860s, Henry Titus moved to Jacksonville and married Mary Evelina Hopkins, the daughter of a prominent planter from Georgia named Edward Hopkins, who became the mayor of Jacksonville between 1868 and 1870. During the Civil War, Henry Titus served as assistant quartermaster in the Florida militia and profited from supplying the Confederacy with food supplies. In 1867, Titus established a general store and a sawmill in a Florida frontier settlement known as Sandpoint. Henry Titus built a hotel there called the Titus House in 1870. It consisted of a large main building with two long wings and a beautiful tropical garden. By 1872, the community of Sandpoint was known as Titusville. This is Bill Sorrell as Henry Titus during the recent play at the Brevard Museum about Titus's adventurous life. I borrowed a half a million dollars and laid out wide streets and paid people to plant and water oak trees, hibiscus, lantana, and wonderful ferns turning that strip of stinging nettles and mosquitoes into a place of beauty. I ran the Titus House, a first-class hotel, with food and drink for every taste and budget. My chefs prepared the finest European cuisine and aged brandy for visiting European royalty and those that could afford it. But there was also plenty of grits, gravy, alligator tail, and corn liquor for those who couldn't afford any better. Rheumatism and gout kept Titus bound to a wheelchair during the last few years of his life. Henry Titus died in 1881. The Tallahassee Floridian stated in his obituary that, quote, There are few men more widely known in this state than Henry Titus. Bill Sorrell as Henry Titus. I spent my final days on the roof in a wheelchair with a loaded shotgun waiting for unknown assassins, although it was noted that I never shot at anyone. 
I suffered from rheumatism and carried a bullet around inside me for years thanks to my battles in bleeding Kansas. I might still be alive if that persnickety tourist hadn't written that letter to the Titusville Star saying that Titusville was not worth visiting and there was nothing to see. I left my bed to stomp down to the editor's office demanding to know why he had published it. I wrote a rebuttal in the Florida Dispatch saying, Titusville is the grand center of all trade and will so continue to be. No slanderous article will change that. Her motto is live and let live. When I returned home, an abscess in my abdomen burst, and out came the bullet from the Kansas battle. Four days later, my obituary appeared in the Star saying that the Titus heritage lives on in the city which bears his name. Henry Titus's grave is located at the LaGrange Cemetery in Mims, Florida. For Florida Frontiers, I am Holly Baker, public history coordinator for the Florida Historical Society and manager of the Brevard Museum of History and Natural Science in Cocoa. You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Please join us right here again next week. Until then, visit us anytime on the web at myfloridahistory.org and on Facebook. Production assistance for Florida Frontiers comes from Ben DiBiase and Holly Baker. Our web extras are produced by Jerry Klein. The program is edited by John White. Have a great week. I'm Ben Brokemarkle. Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Historical Resources and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund, the Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, and by Florida's Space Coast Office of Tourism, representing destinations from Titusville to Cocoa Beach to Melbourne Beach.